joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to be here with you today. This is um, uh, just a wonderful season, just been enjoying the beauty of fall in, in our area. And um, we, as you may or may not know, Todd Arnett and his wife, Todd's our lead pastor here, they are actually away and they're not suffering. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that. Don't be worried about them. They actually won a cruise to the Mediterranean. They've been gone. Uh, this is their second week. They're coming back, I think. They're coming back. Yeah, they're coming back. And um, here's what Todd texted to me this morning. He was just encouraging me, and I said, uh, where are you guys? He says, uh, we're leaving Rhodes on our way to Santorini tomorrow. All right, so that's where they are in the Mediterranean. And as we um, we're in this series uh, called Rejoice, we're walking through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And um, I want you to imagine this, okay? Todd and Joanna are, they've been gone a little while. They're missing us. And so I just want you to imagine that he sent me an email. And he said, I want you to read this to Trinity Church this morning while they're gathered together. And so I begin reading this email, and you can see right away, Todd loves you guys. He loves Trinity Church. And right away out the gate, he's just saying, I am so thankful for you. Every time I pray for you, I'm, I'm just so thankful. And it's because of your partnership in the gospel. And every, like every paragraph, he's just talking about joy. It says, he's, it just gives me so much joy. I'm rejoicing every paragraph practically. Paul, or, or Todd is rejoicing with us. <laughs> ah, sorry about that. And, um, and he's work, working through this. He gives us some directives and just said, don't forget, you know, keep your focus here. And then he ends it and, and he just says, dear brother, my brothers and sisters, Therefore, he says, my brothers and sisters, those I love and long for, he, he says, stand firm in this way. You're, you're my joy and my crown. I mean, he's just effusive with his love for us. And he says, stand firm in this, in the Lord, in this way. And, and then he says, dear friends. And then he does something unbelievable. He calls you out by name, and he says, you, I plead with you, and I plead with you, be of the same mind in the Lord. You need to agree together. So in this wonderful letter to this group of believers, 
that Todd, Todd sending to us, he calls you out. Can you imagine how embarrassed you would be in this room? Can you imagine how the rest of us are just kind of like, oh, I'm glad it's not me. And that's what happens in the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. And that's where we're at today in chapter 4. And I encourage you to follow along. If you have a Bible, just, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 4. You have notes that are available. But here's what we're looking at today. And this is so relevant to us is how should we navigate relational conflict as a church? That's what we're going to look at today. And you can imagine, this has been a pretty emotional week for me. Just thinking about this, emotion, relational conflict is a deeply emotional thing. And if you're a believer in the church, I guarantee if you've been in the church for any time, you have walked through relational conflict. And it probably has been devastating at times. We at Trinity Church, I've been a pastor here for 17 years. You can imagine I've seen my share of relational conflict, both between myself and other people, but also between people in the church. This is deeply personal to us. Some of you here with me, if you've been here over five years, we walked through it together, didn't we? And what we're going to look at today, I think some of it we put into practice, some of it we can learn from. If you're not a, say you're brand new to the faith, and you're thinking, really? Like, this is all new to you? Like, like you guys don't get along? Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's true. And if you're not a believer, you're here today, and you're just kind of exploring the faith, um, I hope what you see today is the beauty of what it looks like for people who are sinners, they're sinful, to follow the Lord Jesus through conflict together. I was, um, I was waiting to pick up my kids from school, my, my elementary age kids, and I was talking to another mom who, who attends here, and we were talking with each other about how hard it is to teach kids to be friends. How hard in the family to teach your kids to get along. Mom and dad, thank you for doing it. I had no idea it was so hard. And my wife and I are like, this is the hardest thing we've ever done. We're both peacemakers. And that's been the hardest thing is to, to raise up your kids and teach them how to go through conflict in a way that is loving. I've had my own share of conflict. I've walked through relational conflict with people in this church and I've lost friendships over it. I've walked through relational conflict with my wife and we made it. I've already shared that raising kids, sometimes you come home to your home and the lack of peace, you hate it. And you feel powerless. What can I do? I've walked through that. And that's why this has been an emotional week for me. I've walked with friends 
through divorce. This is not an easy subject, and yet God gives us a way through, and that's what we're going to look at today. Here's the thing. The church is a family. And I think all of you would agree the family is the training ground. It's boot camp for how to deal with relational conflict. Your family and my family. And the church is a family. And it's the most diverse group of people that God chooses to put together on the face of this earth. And we share the most important mission of all. The stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, there's going to be relational conflict. I'm guessing there's not a person in this room that would say, I've never dealt with relational conflict. And here's the other thing we're dealing with today. Anxiety. Because relational conflict is one of those things in our lives that just brings anxiety. And so God has an answer for us. And we're going to look at that. But before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is, um, this is heavy stuff. It's stuff that I know has caused deep wounds in people. Some wounds that have never healed. Maybe they're healing. They're not fully healed. And so, Father, I pray that what you would open our eyes to is the truth from your word that will transform us in the way that we approach relational conflict as a church, as families, as spouses, as friends. And so I pray, God, that you would direct us in your ways, that we would listen and we would learn how to apply these things today so that you might be glorified through Trinity Church, through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the problem, and this is in Philippians, right out the gate, chapter 4, verse 1. We have a family that's in crisis. There's a relational crisis in the Philippian church. And I have tended all my years just to kind of read through that verse really quickly. And I think it, it is the it could have been what inspired Paul to write this whole letter, is what we're going to see in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. And so I want to take a look there. Turn with me, look on the screens. Philippians 4.1, Paul says, therefore, he's kind of concluding what, what Hilke taught on last week. All these directives, he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And so it's this language that Paul uses of brothers and sisters and friends that makes relational conflict so painful. And here's what makes it so awful, is that it doesn't just affect you and that person you disagree with. Think of your family. Every time you get together in your extended family, if there's some kind of rivalry between a sibling or between parent and a child, it's awful. 
And that's what happens is, is relational conflict between two people affects the whole family when they get together. And by the way, how often does the church family get together? Every week, right? <laughs> whether you're getting together in a small group or whether you're in this big group, we're getting together every week. And so, look, what, here's the problem. Take a look at uh, verses 2 and 3. So Paul says, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've com contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And so we see that this is worse than a disagreement. If this was a mere disagreement, would Paul have risked to embarrass them publicly in front of the whole group? It just seems like that would be ridiculous. So there's something going on that Paul feels this needs to be addressed in front of everyone. If you look at the language, he he, he lays his cards on the table. You see, in his letter, he's been thinking of this conflict all along. I want you to look back to what they would have heard. You know, this letter probably would have been read in one sitting. So they're all sitting there hearing this letter. Look what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 27. He said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you, or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear that same language that he just used in verse 2? Stand firm, striving together for the cause of the gospel. You see, their conduct is not worthy of the gospel. And that's Paul's concern. And when, he's, when we say the gospel, we're simply saying the message of Jesus that we get to carry forward. And so that's in your notes. The conduct, their conduct is not worthy of the gospel. So Paul calls them out. What does striving together, he uses this word only two times in verse 127 and in verse 4-2, or three, wherever it is, he uses this word striving or contending. These are fighting words, right? He says you should be fighting on the same side. That's what you used to be. And I think he's applying. You're fighting against each other. So what does striving side by side look like? Some of you are going to see this picture today on the screen. That's a picture of striving side by side. They're doing everything they can to move that ball forward, to get a field goal or to get a touchdown so that they can win the game. They have one mind. That's what it looks like. What does it look like for Euodia and Syntyche right now? Yeah. 
they forgot that they're on the same team. They're striving against one another. And Paul uses kind words and says, be of the same mind. But he's thinking of this contending. And he's like, you have to get back to contending on the same team for the cause of the gospel. Relational conflict in the church is a major issue that must be addressed quickly. It's a major issue. And so Paul does it in this beautiful letter that's so positive, he just lays it out there. Be of the same mind. So that's the problem. Let's look at the solution, okay? This is where we want to spend our time. So what do we do about it? And his answer is simply help one another. Get help. Right? He says to his co-worker, what does he call him? My true companion. He says, help these women. And so today, I would say we're going to look at everything that Paul writes through two lenses. We're going to look at it through the lens of our own life. If I'm the one who's contending against someone rather than with someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, I need to listen to what's being said. But so do I if I could help these people. And each one of us is in relationship and we can be the ones who can help. And this is a great way that we should walk through it and help someone. And so I want you to think of both roles right now in your life. Is there something in your life that you can apply these to? Or is there someone in your life that maybe you can help? Take a look at uh, verses 4 and 5. Before I say that, here's what Paul says. He says, help people who are in conflict to keep their focus on the Lord. So everything he's going to say is to help people or a community in conflict to keep their focus on Jesus. So look what he says right out of the gates. Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And so really his first advice to you and to me and to us in conflict is carry on. Don't get sidetracked from this, by this thing, by this ugliness, by this distraction, by this disunity. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Keep rejoicing in him. That's his first directive to us. And then he says, keep calm. He says, let your gentleness be seen by all. You see, people are watching. These women who are disagreeing are strong women. They're passionate for the right things. They're, they are contending side by side with Paul for the cause of the gospel. They are, they, they've been so right on. And folks, when strong people 
have disagreements, they're strong disagreements. Think about your family. A lot of those disagreements in your own family come because there is a strong personality. Think of what God can do with a strong personality that's controlled by him. But the, the problem is we start to control ourselves. And what happens is we forget to be gentle. And gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And so if, if we're rejoicing in the Lord and our focus is on Him, then we're going to realize my thoughts right now, what I was going to say to that person, the way I was going to talk about that person to somebody else, that is wrong. And that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if we lose our focus on Him, we start walking down our own path. And so Paul says, let your gentleness be seen by all. I want to show you a picture of gentleness that Paul painted earlier in this passage. He didn't use the word gentleness, but he used the word humility, and they are so closely related. You see, humility, think, you might think, I know I'm right in this situation, but it's willing to not have to win. It's willing to lay yourself down for the sake of that other person. Look what Paul said earlier in Philippians 2, and he's just finished saying, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So there's a hint here that something's wrong at, in the Philippian church. My joy is not complete. You're not like-minded. So he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. There's his word. Here's his phrase. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, can he get more direct than this? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's where gentleness comes from in a heated situation. It's because we want to be like Jesus in the way we walk through this hard thing together. Can you imagine in your marriage if this was how you're walk, working through your disagreement right now? Take a look at this. This is the keep calm and carry on graphic. Do you know what this graphic was, was made for? What was this slogan made for? World War II. <laughs> this slogan was made for the hardest, most anxiety-causing conflict that the people of Britain would ever face. And so they come out with this amazing slogan. Keep calm and carry on. And in a way, that's exactly what Paul's done for the church. <laughs> he says, keep calm, stay gentle, and carry on. Keep your focus on the Lord. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. And the question is, how do you do that? This is in your notes. You remember that the Lord is near. Isn't that beautiful? 
the Lord is near. He's with you in this. You can rely on him. You can depend on him. You should listen to him. You should be like him in this. The Lord is near. And maybe Paul's thinking future, okay? He could be thinking the Lord's return is near. Don't get sidetracked from the main thing of rejoicing and, and striving together side by side for the cause of the gospel. So either way you, you interpret this, this is the truth that helps us to keep calm and to carry on, is to remember that God himself is near. He's with you. Honor him. Praise him. Keep rejoicing in him. And so the first thing that Paul teaches us in those two verses is when you have friends, brothers and sisters who are in relational crisis, conflict, help them to keep their eyes on Jesus. And if you are, keep your eyes on Jesus. And the second thing that Paul gives us is he says, help people who are in conflict to rely upon God, the Lord, to bring peace. Help people who are in conflict to rely on the Lord to bring peace. Wow. Where we're going to go next is we're going to tread through the waters of anxiety. And I got to tell you, we're going to look at some verses and this, I, I've been thinking a lot about myself as a high school student. And this is the beginning of where my, this faith became my faith when I was in high school. I began to, to put it into practice and to truly believe it and to want to follow Jesus. And I remember this was the first passage of scripture that I think I memorized on my own without somebody, some teacher telling me, memorize this. This became incredibly encouraging to me because it's in your stage of life, high schoolers, where you start to realize I'm powerless. I can't control this person. I can't control this situation. I'm insecure and I don't know what to do. And all of our anxieties, our thoughts start going out of control of what could happen. And this is what started to keep me steadfast as I was following Christ. And here's the cool thing. Um, I want to actually say it out loud together. This is a recommend. I'm not telling you to memorize this, but I'm going to recommend, as we have every Sunday in this series, we've recommended memorize some of this book. This is what we're encouraging you to memorize. So let's say this out loud together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow. This biblical truth 
applies to every situation that causes anxiety. Isn't this amazing? Paul isn't just applying this to relational conflict, although in this context, that's what he is applying it to. But he's giving us a directive that I believe is, is how he deals with all the anxiety in his life. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul faced anxiety-wise in his life? He's in prison right now, writing this letter to a church that he cannot come and help. And his heart is broken because two of his friends are in disagreement and it's causing strife in the, in the whole church family. Paul is facing anxiety. But he doesn't just say apply it to this. He says, in all situations, make your requests to the Lord. In everything, he uses the, he blows it wide open. And so, this is an amazing directive that I'll encourage you as you face anxiety, even if it's not of the relational conflict kind, use this. It's an amazing gift that God has given us as a way to deal with anxiety. As you look through this uh, passage, I thought to myself, why does Paul use a bunch of words for prayer? Why doesn't he just say pray? Did you notice that? He says, in all things, in everything, he says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, which is a form of prayer, make your request, which is a form of prayer. So Paul's just giving us this really broad, he could have just said pray, but he gives us all these directives for how we should pray. And here's what I thought of, is that we, if you have a relationship with God, and he's not just some distant, powerful figure that can either bring good or bad into your life, if you have a relationship with God, prayer is way more than just asking for things. What he's telling us to do here is ask. So I'm not saying we shouldn't. But I think to Paul, he's like realizing from his own life that I'm not just asking God for things when I'm facing anxiety. I am pouring my heart out to him. Prayer is a place before God to be completely honest. To lay out the ugliest of the ugliest sins in our heart before God. Because he sees them all. To lay out the ugly thoughts in our head of what we'd like to do to that person or what we'd like to say to that person. To bring that stuff to God because it's safe with him. He's not going to reject you. And that's what I think Paul's getting at, is don't just ask. Pour your heart out to him. And prayer is listening. And prayer is worship. And so he says, thanksgiving. Make sure you're being thankful. Prayer is all those things. You know, the Psalms are a great example to, have been a great example to me of what it looks like to pray. Because I've struggled to pray honestly like that. I kind of 
have felt like in my life, I got to kind of work out all my stuff and come before God clean. And that's just not the way it should be. And the, the Psalms give us this great example of psalmists pouring out their ugly thoughts and their fears. Just take a look. This is just one of so many you could look at, and I encourage you to do this. King David wrote this psalm. Uh, he had been arrested by the Philistines. God had told him, you're going to be king. And he's about to die, right? They're going to kill him because they just captured him. And this is what he says. He says, be merciful to me, God, my God, for my enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they pass, press their attack. My adversaries pursue me all day long, and in their pride, many are attacking me. Did God need to know that? God knew that. But Paul needed to get it off his chest, right? Here's my problem. And then look what he says. When I'm afraid... I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. He's being thankful. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can more, mere mortals do to me? That's just one example where prayer is more than petition. But God says, through his word, make those requests. But don't forget to pour out your heart to the Lord and to listen also. And remember, we're called to help people do these things. So we kind of have to be doing them ourselves if we're going to help other people. Here's the promise. The peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. If I ask today... For people just to stand up and just tell me examples in your life where you've seen this promise hold true, I bet we could be here for hours. Because when people rely on God to bring peace, he does it. Because he promises it. I want to just look at a couple words Paul uses. First of all, he says the peace of God, it's his peace will guard. That word for guard is keep you secure, keep you safe. It has a sense it'll keep you under control too, keep you gentle. When I'm, when I'm anxious, it usually has to do with my insecurity. When there's a relational issue in my family, and I think I'm the guy who's in charge of this family, and I can't stand the way they're treating each other. I feel that insecurity. And God says, the peace of God will keep you secure. It's the answer to my insecurity. And he says, it will guard your heart and your mind. The heart are, is the depth of my feeling and my emotion. And the mind is the place where those anxious thoughts are spinning out of control. And it's also the place where Paul's telling, saying, be of the same mind to these two women. And God's saying, I'm going to keep your feelings and your thoughts secure. I'm going to guard you. 
<sighs> and it's in Christ, right? In Christ Jesus, it's not in me. You see, this peace transcends all understanding. This is miraculous, you guys. This is supernatural. This isn't peace I can work up on my own. This is something that only God can give, and it's through Christ Jesus. And I'm afraid to say that if you don't have a relationship with Christ, I don't think he can give that to you. I think you need to be relying on him. That's what faith is. You rely on Jesus. You trust him. And that's where, how a relationship starts. So maybe relational conflict is a way that Jesus is calling us to him. And I would encourage you to respond today. Put your faith in Christ and begin to pour your heart out to him and to rely on his peace. So here's the promise in closing. Take a look. Um, the Lord promises, oh, I'm sorry, I have one more thing. Paul is so practical. He gives us this amazing gift because he tells us to be thankful, and you're thinking, what do I have to be thankful for in the midst of anxiety and conflict? And he just tells you, just start thinking about everything lovely and pure and excellent. And when he uses the word, um, this is in Philippians 4, so what we're to do is to help people who are in conflict to dwell on something else. When I'm in relational conflict, I go home. If it's something that happened here at work, I can hardly function because I'm so eaten up by it. And if it's something that happened at home right before I left, maybe I had a terrible interaction with one of my kids, I can hardly function at work because I feel that's all I can think about is either what this person did or how I handled it wrong. And so God gives us a tool, which is think about something else. Don't think about the conflict all the time. It's not going to get you anywhere. So he says, think about all these good things. Practical way that I do it, or that you could help someone do it, the word think means to take inventory. It's a different word than, than, there's another Greek word for think. He's saying, count your blessings, right? Take inventory. I, I think it helps to write things down. Write down those things that you're thankful for that are good and beautiful. And here's a real challenge. Write them out in this person you're having conflict, especially if this is a spouse or if this is a child. Write out these beautiful things that you see in them and don't forget. Dwell on those things rather than the conflict. All right, so here's the promise. God says, I'm going to give you the peace of God that transcends all understanding. But here's the amazing thing. I'm going to give you the God of peace. He's with you. The God of peace will be with you. That is a promise. Take a look at it. It's uh, this last verse, verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. 
You know what he's saying? You do your part. Put these things into practice. And God will do his part. He'll bring that supernatural peace. So this isn't a step-by-step, here's how you deal with conflict. This is a, like, here's what the, the, the soil of your life should look like so that God can do his work and bring peace. And he doesn't tell us exactly what that work looks like. So this isn't, this is the foundation of how peace returns. I love this um, promise. And Paul's saying, you know, do what I do. Isn't that what he's saying? Do what I do. Because he lived with, I think, intense anxiety. He was a strong type A leader, and he was powerless in prison. How would that go for you? To do anything, you can't do anything except for pray and write letters. <laughs> That's what he did. Look what he wrote in Philippians 2:28. He's talking about sending Epaphrodites back, right? And that's who carried this letter and probably who his fellow, what do you call him? Fellow companion, true companion. I think Epaphroditus is the guy who carried the letter back, who read the letter to the church, and who was called upon to help these women. Look what, he, look what Paul says about Epaphroditus in verse 28 of chapter 2. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. He's his heart. He can hardly think about anything else except for this terrible situation in the Philippian church. And so he's sending Epaphrodites. And you guys, what Paul has given us and what God has put in his word through the Holy Spirit to guide us through relational conflict is how Paul did it. This is how Paul was doing it. He's rejoicing in the Lord. He's keeping his eyes on Jesus. He's keeping calm. He's carrying on. He's remembering God is near. He's relying upon Jesus to bring peace because he can't do it. It's way over his head. He doesn't even have access to them. So here's the now what for today. When you're facing relational conflict within the church, we should help each other to keep our focus on the Lord and to rely upon Him to provide peace. The slogan, keep calm and carry on, was designed by the British government to help the British people navigate the most difficult conflict they would ever face in their lives. Millions of signs were printed, and the government decided this is our last resource that we're going to put out there when it gets really bad. And they never did. The British people never used this slogan, keep calm and carry on, for its intended purpose. It was found in the year 2000 in the back of a bookstore and the owners of the bookstore thought this is a cute sign and they framed it and put it on the wall and people started being like I love that can I have a copy 
what's happened since 2000? Is there, have you seen this in like 5 million different ways it can be said? Do you own stuff with it printed on it? Was it ever used for its intended purpose? And here's what I want to encourage you to do today. Don't fail to put these things into practice because the temptation for you and for me is to take things into our own hands when there's relational conflict. And most of the time that creates more of a mess than allowing God to bring his peace. So let's apply these things for the intended purpose that they were given. And they're given as a gift to you and your spouse and your children and to us as a community of Christ followers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is hard territory to talk about because there's a lot of pain in the, from the past. And I know that right here presently, there are people who are deep, deep in the weeds of relational conflict. And so I want to thank you that you are the God of peace who promises not only to give us peace when we rely upon you and when we trust in you, but you promise to give us yourself and you've given us yourself in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that we can keep our focus on him, that we can rely on you to bring peace. Father, I pray for Trinity Church. I think this is timely for us because we're walking through change. We're trying to fix our focus on this mission of being rooted in Christ and reaching our world. The stakes are high. Father, help us to navigate this according to your word. May our conduct be worthy of your gospel. Father, forgive us as a church for the times in the past when we have not been like-minded Instead of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, we have been striving against one another. Father, would you heal relationships? Would you bring back people who left us because of the things that went, happened here at Trinity Church over five years ago? Would you bring healing to relationships today that are broken and even on the verge of destruction, because you can do it, and we cannot. Father, help us to be a people who are always rejoicing in you, our great God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.